Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we are really resuming what we were considering last week. So I'm going to start our reading in just a moment in verse 21, but we are looking explicitly today at verses 23 through 28. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 923. Before we read the Scripture together, let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come and we ask that You would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things here in Your Word. Would You sanctify us by this, Your Word of truth, and would You use the Word that sanctifies to exalt Your own name and to cause us to live to Your honor. Hear us as we pray this. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scripture? Acts 14, I'll start reading in verse 21. When they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the Gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Thus far, the word of the Lord, and may He be praised. Brethren, please be seated. Well, as we noted last time, Paul and Barnabas have been traveling for months. Hard to be sure exactly how long it was, something like eight to twelve months or so. They've covered hundreds of miles, seen many conversions, faced much criticism and a few rocks. But as we saw last week, they determined to go back to all of these cities where they preached the gospel, for they purposed to strengthen those churches, to press more truth into their hearts and to ensure that they were fortified in difficult situations. Not only that, Paul and Barnabas didn't paint a Pollyanna picture of the Christian life. Christianity, while liberating us from the bondage of sin, empowering us in Christ by the Spirit to resist the devil, and giving us this eternal hope, it yet doesn't release us from all the trouble in this life. Paul preach through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As we trace the steps of Jesus, that necessarily means we're going to face trouble like Jesus. Now, brethren, those troubles could be faced in a thousand different ways, but tribulation will be felt because believers in God's wisdom are not immediately transitioned to glory. We walk through hardships But God uses those hardships to further strengthen our faith. Yet part of that strengthening, or should I say a means of seeing the church strengthened, 
is the leadership that the Lord provides for His people as they plod through this pilgrim existence. We're not running the race alone, but not only do we have fellow companions, we have those out in the front to lead us. And Paul and Barnabas here make sure that there are leaders present to reinforce the church, and then they'll travel back home to share of all that the Lord has done. Now I want you to see three things as we consider those broad subjects in our passage. And in this first point, it will be settling leadership, and we'll spend a little more time here. Now, of all the areas of study in theology, there is theology proper, the doctrine of God. There's Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. There's eschatology, the study of last things. That stuff gets people really excited. But then there's one area, ecclesiology, the study of the church, where people just tune out, go to sleep, and say, I really don't care. That's a sad reality. Because Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And in Jesus' determination to build His church, He doesn't just abandon the church to figure it out, to drift with no direction through life. On the contrary, King Jesus is pleased to raise up shepherds. We often call them under-shepherds. Those under Christ who are shepherds after His own heart to lead the people. And while some might find verse 23 to be just an incidental and fairly unimportant piece of information, what happens here is monumental for the protection and strengthening of these churches. And we have seen that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples in verse 22. They kept teaching of God's great grace and saving power. But that's not all they do to strengthen. Verse 23, look at it again with me. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them, that is these elders, to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now there are several things to unpack here, and I'm going to take the time to do it because it's crucial for the health of every church, and it's crucial to understanding at least one reason why we're Presbyterian. First, I want you to see that they, Paul and Barnabas, appointed elders. You don't have to know many Greek words, but this is a good one to know. Presbuteros. Does that sound somewhat familiar? That's the word for elder. It's the word from which we get Presbyterian. However, there's vehement dispute here over the verb translated appointed. Now, bear with me as I get a little technical. The word translated appointed means literally to stretch out the hand or to indicate by raising the hand. And it was used, whether you're looking at Greek philosophers or Jewish philosophers speaking the Greek language or the church fathers, this word was used of voting, of choosing, as in the people engaged in an election. And yet some recognizing that Paul and Barnabas are the subject of the verb appointed claim well, it can't mean an election here. It must simply mean that Paul and Barnabas just put men in office as elders. In other words, Paul and Barnabas, some think, just acted like, as we come to think of them, bishops. In other words, the people didn't have any say in who their elders were. 
Paul and Barnabas just put guys in office. Now, if you grew up or are familiar with Anglican, Episcopalian, Methodist, or Assembly of God churches, not to mention Roman Catholic, maybe you'll understand now why they do what they do. They claim that there are supreme leaders in the churches who appoint other leaders. The people don't choose, the higher-up leaders choose. Now, brethren, that view has insurmountable problems. And I'm going to mention two. First, when Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 gives the qualification for elders or overseers, synonymous words, the qualifications are put before the whole church. God's people are all told what to look for in an elder. It's not some special class of leaders who alone get special instruction in the, in the secret room out back to pick the leaders. No, the working principle is God's people as a whole must be able to recognize God's men, those gifted and graced so that we can vote for them to be our leaders. And then secondly, back in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles needed help in taking care of the widows who were being overlooked, how did they go about selecting those original deacons? They just shoved men into office, right? No, they gave qualifications for the people to recognize that the people could elect them. Pick out from among you seven men full or seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. In other words, the people, seeing the qualifications of these men, chose their leaders. The apostles didn't force leaders upon the people, the people themselves chose. And then the apostles took those seven chosen men picked by the people and put them in office or set them apart for office. They, the fancy word is, they ordained the deacons by prayer and the laying on of hands. Well, notice what's going on in our text. Paul and Barnabas, verse 23, like Acts chapter 6, set these leaders apart. They commend the elders to the Lord with prayer and fasting. That sounds a whole lot like the ordaining of the deacons back in Acts 6. And what does it tell us about the significance of this word appoint? It means the people indicated by the raising of their hand, which is what the word translated appointed means, and recognizing the people's choice, Paul and Barnabas then ordained their elders. They didn't impose elders on the church, subverting the right of the people to choose. The people selected their elders. Now, this, brethren, again, people are like, okay, who cares? This is a foundational principle of biblical church government. We believe that the Bible teaches plainly that officers in the church are chosen by the people. The people recognize the work of the Spirit in those men and select them to be their leaders. Further in the history of the church, those clinging to the bishop model have some major obstacles to overcome. First, even the apostles, who are in a unique, unrepeatable, authoritative office, with all their power, they didn't put men in office without the people's consent. They sought the people to choose, and then they put in office. 
And then while the Bible gives two different words for shepherds or leaders of God's people, one, you, you already learned your Greek word of the day, right? Presbuteros, elder. The other is the word overseer, or some translate bishop. Tell me if you've ever heard this word. Episkopos, from which we get Episcopalian. There's two different denominations, I know. But those words biblically are interchangeable. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, I exhort the elders, presbuteros, among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, bishoping. Elder is the title. Bishoping, or overseeing, is the work. The same thing is seen in Acts chapter 20. The elders from Ephesus are called to meet with the Apostle Paul, and he tells them, pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. You guys are elders who must do the work of bishop. In other words, brethren, there is no biblical basis for a distinct office of bishop. The elder is the bishop. His job is to bishop, which means to oversee. So what's going on in this passage is the people, these young churches, the people recognize the spirit-gifted men for leadership. And then Paul and Barnabas, upon the people's election, ordained them. So much abuse of power in the history of the church could be avoided if we simply paid attention to this principle. That not some wealthy landowner puts people in office, not some guru high up in the church puts people in office. You choose, because that's the way the Lord established it. And that, of course, carries a weight of responsibility on the people to choose wisely. It's hard not to remember the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for those who know. He chose poorly. You can choose poorly. Well, God gives you a very lengthy description of what you should be looking for on purpose so you would know what to choose. This is really significant. We can look back in the history of God's people, particularly in the days of the kings, and we can see how much suffering were brought on the people because they had rotten leaders. God is aiming to protect His church by giving you all these qualifications that you could rightly choose and see them put in office. And then notice as Paul and Barnabas ordained these men selected by the people, verse 23, we see they appointed elders for the people, for them, in every church. That is, from church to church, there were elders, plural. We don't see the people simply calling one elder. That's not the model for biblical church leadership, though it's very common today. We see a plurality of elders in each local church. That's exactly how the Jews of old functioned. Each enclave of Jews had elders, plural. It's how the synagogue worked. There was a ruler of the synagogue with elders, plural. And that's how King Jesus is ordering His church to be governed. The risen Christ, the King, the true shepherd and overseer of His people, provides elders, multiple men, to shepherd the people. What wisdom there is here in the purposes of God. There isn't one man with his own little fiefdom, a local popery of one guy calling the shots. There's a plurality of elders who were equal in the Lord, that together they would protect the flock. These 
elders, plural, can hold each other accountable, and they can likewise be a source of counsel for one another. Wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors, not bad counselors, right? But gifty, gifted, godly elders, proven counselors. And these men add weight to their testimony. Let every matter be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. They together give a comprehensive witness. Now in Acts chapter 6, God's people were told to choose seven men. No number is here specified. We don't know how many elders each church chose. It would all depend on how many were qualified, godly, and gifted. But the plurality is crucial. This is how Christ's church is to function. It's why we have elders plural. We don't do church government by our whims. We don't get to dictate to Jesus, you know, we're just going to run the church like we think is best. When we do things according to our wisdom, what happens every time? There's a way that seems right to a man, and the end of that way is what? Death. We always get it wrong. We don't tell the Lord, hey, you're just going to accept the way we worship you. We don't tell the Lord, you're just going to accept the way we govern the church for which Jesus spilt His blood. We just submit to what He's told us to do. Now, what's the purpose of this whole thing? Establishing these elders. Why are Paul and Barnabas as they travel back through, making sure they ordain elders in every church. Because this is a means to strengthen souls. This is God's means to encourage people to continue in the faith. This is a way to remind them in the midst of all the trouble they face that God has taken care of them and they don't need to lose heart. What is to become of these churches as Paul and Barnabas go home? Are they now left to themselves? No, Christ provides each church, elders, men who are apt to teach, men who are examples of godliness, men who can shepherd the church through the troubled waters of difficulty. This is the way the Lord strengthens His people. Elders are not made elders just because somebody's got to be in charge. This is not like uh, the Rotary Club where somebody has to do the leading, just don't let it be me. No, no, we're talking about living for Jesus in a hostile world. Brethren, let's be honest. We're facing frequent trouble, threats to our soul. We've got attacks within, we've got attacks without. We're navigating life in a fallen world with death, with sickness, with family discouragements, with financial pressures. And we all need ongoing encouragement in the truth. That's why the elders are given. So that they can watch over souls. They're not there just to whip you into shape, to smack you when you do something wrong. They're there to come along you and encourage you down the path of godliness. They're watching, encouraging, rebuking, yes, if needed, but aiming simply to get you to glory. That's the goal. This is not a power-hungry position. Though there's no question some seek it for power. This is all about laying down your life to strengthen the people of God because we aim to build up the sheep. Now, brother, knowing that this task is labor-intensive, tireless, joyful in seeing souls strengthened, but burdensome in fighting sin, should we not be in prayer that the Lord would guard our elders? 
Should we not look at the multitude of them and see that it's like Moses having his hands held up by Aaron and her, that the elders are supporting one another, that the church might be helped? Paul and Barnabas, brethren, they want us to understand the Christian life can't be lived on an island. We're not a disconnected people, even though everything in our culture says that we are. No, we need oversight. We need to be fed the Word, counseled, prayed for, exhorted publicly and from house to house because that is the way we get strengthened. Do you know you need strength from the Lord through the elders? Do you pray for them then? That they would watch you, care for you, pray for you. Do you praise God for His wisdom? That He didn't just give you one sinner to look over your needs but a multitude of them so that your oversight wouldn't fail. One final thing before we move on. See Paul and Barnabas, the end of verse 23, committing these elders, that is entrusting them with prayer and fasting to the Lord. Paul and Barnabas can't remain there with these new leaders, but there is one who can remain. And it's the Lord Himself. So with earnest prayer, and prayer is made more earnest by fasting, they entrust the souls of these elders to the Lord Jesus. Now Jesus knows those who are His and He's always watching over His people. No one can snatch them out of His hand. Paul and Barnabas, however, recognize these new elders need the help of Christ. They need empowerment from Jesus. They need to be conscious that only Jesus can keep them. So they entrust them to the care of the Lord Jesus, just as Jesus once said from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. I submit to you in your care. Paul and Barnabas commit these men to Christ. And brethren, what does that say about their view of Jesus? That He truly is the King who can watch over all of His people all the time. That He can keep His people in the difficulty of many tribulations pressing in on us. We may be the special targets of Satan, but we are safe in the loving hands of Christ. And again, the very fact that Paul and Barnabas would pray like this tells us that we should pray like this. Do you know one of the fastest ways to sink a church? Sink the leaders of a church. Have you all seen this happen in your Christian experience? Where a leader falls and the church is decimated. Well, what do you think Satan's going to do? He's going to go after the heads, cut them off, that the people would be scattered. How we need your prayers that we would be kept. I plead with you to beg God to protect your elders, that the church would be strengthened and not inhibited on the path to glory. What an example this is to us about church leadership. But then secondly, see with me this morning, speaking the word, not just settling the leadership, but speaking the word. Verses 24 and 25. Now Luke is giving us pretty sparse information about this return trip through all these regions of Galatia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. We really hear nothing except the passing through. But then they come to the city of Perga. Now Perga is just a few miles up the Mediterranean coast on a river. And before they go back down to the coast, Atawiah, and they set sail to Antioch back home, we read in Perga, verse 25, that there they had spoken or they preached the Word. Now, on the previous trip through Perga, Luke recorded no ministry there. 
In fact, it was the place where John Mark had deserted them. Likely with that blow, they simply moved on. But now for the first time, they engage in the ordinary ministry of gospel proclamation. Now, why is Luke, in the midst of telling us almost nothing, pointing this out? Well, he's showing us the pattern of persistent ministry. He's showing us again, if we haven't got the point already, that the church primarily grows through one means. What does that mean? Preaching. This is the way that souls are saved and saints are sanctified. So Paul and Barnabas are relentless in doing that one thing, preaching the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, as we see Paul and Barnabas do this from town to town, over and over and over again, I hope that we're getting the message of the role that preaching plays in the purposes of God. It's very trendy today to put off an emphasis on preaching, the public proclamation of Scripture, that authoritative heralding of the good news, and the church have more interest in things like counseling and small groups and book clubs and service projects and the like. Now, I am not at all discounting the value of counseling from the Word of God or of believers gathering in homes and discussing truths, of working through books and praying together. Acts 2.42 and following shows that the pattern of the church was frequent connection, ongoing fellowship, meals together, prayer together. But even back in Acts chapter 2, what was the first thing of importance? The people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Also in Acts chapter 6, when there's the trouble of widows being overlooked, and we need to establish deacons, there was something that was said in the midst of establishing those deacons. We have to choose men to serve the widows to wait tables, which by the way is what the word deacon means. Uh, you can tell that to your deacons. You're just a table waiter. That's what they are. They're servants, right? But the apostles say, we must establish this office because it is not right. Not right to whom? Not right to Christ. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. There's nothing wrong with serving tables. It has to be done. Service to the saints is needful. But there's something that can't be lost, put on the back burner, or ever slip away in the midst of caring for God's people. And it's preaching the Word. Why? This is the means that God has chosen to bear witness to Jesus' name. You might think to yourself, that's a really weak means. Yes, it is. In fact, Christ calls it a weak means that He might get the glory and not men. The Lord is choosing what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the strong and rescuing sinners through the preaching of the Word. And brethren, in our day, across the evangelical landscape, we're seeing less and less preaching. Sermons are truncated to short little lessons like their TED Talks on self-improvement. Or, or maybe the morning sermon remains strong, but the evening sermon has gone the way of the dodo bird. But brethren, if preaching is the primary means of grace to us, we don't need less of it. We need more of it. This is a unique means that Christ has chosen, not me, 
It sounds very self-serving for me to tell you these things. It's a unique means that Christ has chosen to confront His people with the truth and help them grow. The exposition of the Word of God with power as the Word is brought forcibly on your consciences, your affections, your wills. Christ is, as Paul puts it to the church at Galatia, publicly portrayed to you as crucified. The Galatians did not see Jesus hanging on the cross. But when Paul preached the gospel with power, it was as though everything came into living color. The gospel came with power. It came to life. Preaching sets the soul on fire that by God's grace we could grow. Do we take delight in this regular return of preaching week by week, morning and evening? Do we value it? Do we value King Jesus for washing us with the water of the Word as He has His servants communicate His message? What are we learning from Paul and Barnabas? We're learning how significant preaching is in the purposes of God. And it should drive you to another reason to pray for your elders that they could preach with power so that it would seem like a strengthening effect upon your soul and that we would value the Word communicated like this. And then finally, see with me here, sharing God's work. The brothers were told, set sail from Ataliah to head back to Antioch. This was their sending church. The place where, verse 26, they had been commended or literally handed over to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now, Luke explicitly points out that Paul and Barnabas fulfilled the work. There was a very particular plan for this first missionary journey. That should give us the who are concerned with details some encouragement. They had a plan. They didn't just wing it. They had a plan that they can now say was fulfilled. And the saints at Antioch had handed these brothers over to God in His grace that they could fulfill the plan. They prayed for God's protective care and for His enabling of their ministry. So Paul and Barnabas were sent out conscious that only by God's grace could they do this great thing, bring the gospel of Christ to far-off Gentiles. And now they've come home and by God's grace they've done it. While they have certainly worked, preaching tirelessly, teaching, withstanding adversaries, dealing with slander and stones, they did it all by the grace of God. You remember how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15? He, he lowers himself. He's the least of all the apostles, right? Because he's persecuted the church of God. And then he says, I've worked harder than all of them, but not I, but the grace of God within me. When Paul and Barnabas get home, they don't want to say how great we are. Did, let me tell you about the argument I used. No, they celebrated God's grace. And it's only right, after you've prayed for a particular matter like this mission trip, to hear what God has done on the trip. So verse 27, after arriving, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. Look at how God-centered they are. Paul is always deflecting praise to God. God has done it. Or Paul says in another place in Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gets the glory. God is the builder. 
God raises up laborers, yes, but He does the work. He awakens souls. He deepens faith. God uses means, His servants, but God is doing these things through these men. How do we recognize this principle? It has many practical applications. Maybe we're not taking the gospel to foreign fields and experiencing God's preserving power in thick persecution. But are we conscious that whatever we do for good, whatever we do in the service of God's people, whether it's changing diapers, teaching kids, coming alongside someone with a meal, whatever we do, it is the Lord who has empowered our efforts. Are we looking for credit, seeking the praise of man? Or do we see and celebrate? God has done it all. Think about for a second. What do we bring to service in God's kingdom? Three things. Our sin, our weakness, and our limited perspective. Now what's going to get done if we're dependent on that? Nothing. And yet what does God provide? He gives us cleansing mercy in Jesus. He gives us gifts for service through the Spirit. He empowers us and He pours out His wisdom. He gives His Holy Spirit to strengthen all that we would do. And should we have occasion to talk about the service done, we should praise the Lord for what He has done through us. In fact, I think Paul and Barnabas are showing us another really important principle for church government. Missionary reports are not just pragmatic things. We want to hear what you're doing because we're paying for what you're doing and we want to make sure we're getting our money's worth out of what you're doing. Well, it's a lot more spiritual than that. A missionary needs to come and report because we have a connection together in Christ. We've prayed for His fruitful ministry. We've sought God for the outpouring of His power. And when we hear a missionary report, what we hear is God has answered our prayers. He's been faithful. And brethren, to the degree that we actually pray for our missionaries, will be the degree to which we actually care about hearing the report. Though we should note that Paul and Barnabas, when they give the report, gather the church. They come home and they tell everybody, come and hear of the work of God. We should all care about hearing of the work of God through, through men we support in mission. And I want you to consider this the next time we have a missionary passing through. Maybe it's just on a Wednesday night. Because you need to hear. You need your faith bolstered that God is answering prayer and doing amazing things. What is it that Paul and Barnabas report? Well, we close with this. Verse 27. That God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The sense here is the Lord, in connection to His promise to have the Gospel go to the ends of the earth, He has opened an unprecedented opportunity for gospel impact among the Gentiles. What a joy it is for these Gentile Antiochian Christians to see that the Lord is creating faith through His Word as the Word is preached in other Gentiles. And really focus on that language, God opening a door of faith. Take that to heart. How does faith come into the heart of a darkened sinner? God opens the door. God uncovers the blindness. God melts the heart. It is the Lord who creates faith. 
and he does it as his word is preached. Some of you will remember the old gospel song, I know whom I have believed. And in this song, the writer references this very thing, which is truly mysterious. He says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. What he's saying is, look, I can't give you a systematic explanation of the amazing inward work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is preached and somehow, supernaturally, power comes from God to open the heart. I can't explain to you the creation of faith. But what I recognize is the Lord did this in me. Why do we Gentiles believe this morning? Because the Lord has opened a door of faith in our hearts. Why do you see when everyone else seems to be blind? Because the Lord made you see. All the more reason to gather the church and talk about the grace of God Almighty. Paul and Barnabas don't celebrate their skillful arguments or their wisdom in sharing the gospel though they were wise and powerful to persuade, because they recognize no skillful persuasion can crack the hard heart. Only God can do that. The Lord must open a door of faith. Now, the Lord uses good arguments and bold speaking. I'm not saying you don't need to learn how to be a spokesman for the Lord. But it is God who makes dead sinners live. And friend, if you're here this morning and you need a heart change, that's exactly what the Lord has the power to do. And you just simply need to plead. Lord, change my heart. Lord, give me faith. Lord, make me to see Christ. Renew me and revive me. Create faith in my soul. Paul and Barnabas are so excited about the work of God. Brethren, are we this excited about the grace of the Lord? Yeah, I know you don't get excited about church government. But it was so crucial to strengthening those churches that they celebrate God's goodness. He has not only opened a door of faith, He's given those churches all they need to function. May we see God's kind gifts to us and praise His name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to adore You. We adore our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, who is building His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We thank You that as Christ builds the kingdom, He provides us all that we need, including leaders to direct us, to watch over us and care for our soul. Lord, we know that our our leaders are a gift and we pray that You would help us to see them as such. We know that they are under assault and we pray that You would protect them, guard them, and keep them. We also pray, O Lord, that You would empower their every effort. Where they have failed, give them grace to turn. Where they have celebrated Your goodness, O Lord, may we all see Your amazing grace. And Lord, we all praise You for the door of faith You've opened in our hearts. Thank You for creating faith in us that we could see Christ and embrace Him, the only Savior of sinners. Hear us as we praise You for Your goodness to us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.